At special times, believers in the Old and New Testaments believe that they ought to make covenants together vowing that they would obey King Jesus. Following in their footsteps, in 1638, Scottish Christians signed the National Covenant which rejected the enforcement of prelacy on the Presbyterian Church. When threatened to have these rights taken away, the Scottish Covenanters in 1639 united under the Blue Banner which read, For Christ's Crown and Covenant. As direct theological descendants of the Scottish Covenanters, the RPCNA still honors the Blue Banner for what it stands for, that Jesus is the only head and king of his church. The Blue Banter podcast's goal is to go about informing the reforming by introducing you to our pastors and under-shepherds of Christ's church. By listening to this podcast, you will have greater clarity on the blessings and challenges faced by each of our congregations. We pray that the Lord blesses you through this podcast for Christ's crown and his covenant. I want to welcome everybody again to another episode of the Blue Banter podcast, a podcast where we're striving to introduce the members of the RPCNA to the pastors of the RPCNA and to serve young and aspiring pastors by gleaning wisdom from men with ministry experience. I am one of your co-hosts, Joe Smith, pastor of Westminster Reform Presbyterian Church in Westminster, Colorado. I think it's Denver, Colorado. You don't even know where you are. Where are you from, Joseph? Is it Denver or really, Westminster, Colorado? Are you really asking me that? Is it really As called Westminster, Colorado? Yes. No, no, no. I know that. I know that. But you said from Westminster, Colorado, not Denver, Colorado. We are in Westminster, Colorado. That's literally the name of it. Yes. Not Denver, Colorado. So there's a, there's a section in West, Denver called Westminster. There's if a were... suburb of Denver <laughs> called Westminster. Is there really? Okay. I didn't know that. Do you know how Greenwood is a suburb of Indianapolis? I don't think Greenwood is technically Indianapolis, though. It's outside of the 465 loop. Southport is a suburb of Indianapolis. Okay. All right. That's okay. Fair enough. All right. I was just asking the question. I wasn't sure. Thank you for educating. I appreciate you. You're welcome. Yes. You're, you're a good man. Uh, as I've embarrassed myself, I'm Aaron, uh, Aaron Murray, pastor of Marion Reformed Presbyterian Church in Marion, Indiana. And we have another uh, different type of episode for you today. Again, uh, we're kind of in between uh, guests with our recording schedule. So Joseph and I thought what we would do today is we would spend um, our time talking about the exam process for students. And as uh, Joe and I have just recently gone through that exam, we thought it'd be fun for us to kind of talk about um, what it is, how to do it, what the purposes are, what type of uh, exams um, are given to students and then maybe just some um, back and forth about our experiences, um, those who went under the exam process, and then maybe some uh, advice for those looking to take exams. So with that, um, when it comes to uh, getting involved in the exam process, what are uh, what, what does a student need to do in order to get to that point? So let's say that there's a man who wants to go to seminary, but he doesn't know quite how to do that. Um, what are the first steps that a man should take? I think the best advice I ever received on that was from David Hansen when I went to him after being stirred up by a talk with Joel Beakey at a Reformation Indie conference to at least approach uh, my session about an internal call and that desire. I was ready to just like go to seminary, to sell everything and go to seminary and I know that's the trek some guys kind of take, but David Hansen told me that seminary is not the place to go to find out if you're called, but the place to go once you have a pretty good 
idea of being called. And another minister helped me out one time and made a distinction between uh, the formal and the informal external call. And obviously the formal external call does not occur until you actually get called by a church. Mm -hmm. But there's this informal validation that comes externally uh, that does give some sound grounds to the internal desire. And so that can come through uh, the guidance of your session and so and and of the presbytery. So the first step, if you have this thirst for seminary that, that I would recommend, maybe you'd have a little something different, but I think you you followed a pretty similar trick, was that you should go to your session, express said dinner, and then work with your session and trust your session to outline a plan for you going forward. For me, just what that involved was a one-year internship planned and formalized with my session, which involved me not having a bachelor degree background, involved me taking a couple courses, seminary-level courses, and involved me uh, having some opportunities to lead the midweek prayer uh, meeting at Southside, and then eventually your session will recommend you through the candidates and credentials committee to be taken under care by the presbytery. Uh, so I could say more about that. Is there anything you want to toss in on, on that at this point? No, I think uh, <clears throat> it is critical that the session endorses the man who wants to go uh, to seminary. So the, the internship process even though it's not something like in seminary, you're required to take an internship, but this is, this is something different. This would be something where the session is like, okay, we want to evaluate this man to see if um, he at least has the seedling um, skills and knowledge and character to be able to handle the exams, handle um, seminary and handle the ministry. So during that internship, whether it's, I don't know, yours was a year, I think mine was a year and a half, something like that. During that exam or that internship process, the session will then be able to determine: okay, does does this man have at least the, the beginnings of what we see a man would need for ministry? Um, and so, once that's done, then the session will kind of endorse you or um, recommend you to the candidates and credentials committee, depending on which presbytery you're a part of. Sometimes those committees are two different ones, but in the GLG, at least it's uh, one committee. And so. You'll, you'll come to the candidates and credentials committee and they'll kind of interview you and ask you nothing too intense, but more just about your own uh, internal call that, that you feel the Lord is leading you to um, the ministry. And then assuming that goes well, then they'll recommend you to the presbytery and you'll have the opportunity to kind of give your testimony and uh, maybe answer a few questions about that testimony. And then the presbytery will vote on whether to take you under care or not. And then once you're taken under care, then um, you'll start to get slated in for um, exams, whether it's that particular meeting or more likely maybe uh, a meeting after that. But that, that would be what I would add to uh, everything that you've said. Yeah, I think that's basically right. Um, I think usually, too, right when you're right when you come under care, at least in the GLG, you were assigned an advisor from the candidates and credentials committee that was kind of given the task of being there to answer questions and to help offer guidance to you on which exams to take. Obviously you, you can be working with your, your session for advice on that as well. But yeah, I mean, that's, that's basically 
what gets you in the door. I don't think – did you or I take any exams before going off to seminary? I don't think so, did we? Or did we? Yeah, well, we did. Sort of, because you and I both did it Maybe? online. Um, oh, yeah, that's Yeah, right. because we, both, before we both took we... exams in Elkhart before we had officially moved to, to seminary. Right. But we were taking classes online at that point. Right. Yes, we right. were for sure, because that was right before COVID hit. Mm -hmm. I yeah. think I actually yep. even started taking classes before I was taken under care. Um, mm. that, that was, I think, <clears throat> excuse me, part of the uh, internship process. Because like you, I didn't uh, I didn't get an undergrad. So the session wanted to see if I had the uh, intellectual acumen to be able to actually pass classes. By God's grace, I, I did. So Sure. Yeah. Yeah. We had Denny's preaching class together. And then, yeah, I took I took one other one that was able to transfer uh to rpts that that would maybe be one other thing i think it maybe toss in there if you're going to take any classes before seminary and you're planning to go to rpts it would be good to check with them beforehand just to make sure that they'd be willing to transfer and receive those credits you'd hate to take i mean if you're, if you're talking about a major seminary like mine was through rts or something like that it'd probably be fine but you, you'd hate to waste a bunch of time and money taking classes and then not having being able to transfer. Mm -hmm. So <clears throat> when it comes to the actual exams, there are, uh, before we get into the details of what they are, there are two types of exams. One is an oral exam. The other is a written uh, exam. So um, what is the, the process of an oral exam? Yeah. So, I mean, the process of the oral exam is you'll know already which exam is going to be oral or not. Generally speaking, leading up to said exam, at least this is my experience, you'll find out who your examiner is going to be, and you may have some brief contact with them. Likely they'll reach out to you just letting you know, hey, I'm your examiner. One of them may tell you, hey, this is basic. They'll just remind you of what is to be expected of such an exam, like if it's an systematic theology one exam. These are the general things, basically just reminding you of things the handbook of that presbytery will probably say. And then so the process of it is you'll, being a student under care, you'll be attached uh, to the basic documents that are sent out to the presbytery most likely. And so you'll see the agenda. You'll see yourself slotted in to a certain time slot. And then assuming everything's Nice and timely. Once that time slot for you is up, which uh, I'm going to interrupt you, asked, it rarely ever is. So if you're set up for a time at say three thirty, you can probably anticipate taking your exam closer to eight thirty at night. That's just how things roll. If not the next day, or even not the, the next, next presbytery it, meeting, it happens. It happens. It happened to me. <laughs> so, <laughs> so yeah, you'll. Uh, that uh, real quick, thing. that happened to you, I think, because I got slated uh, to be taken under care or something like that, right? Like there, there was some thorn in my to, side yeah. for <laughs> many years now. Oh no. All right. Carry on. I'll stop interrupting you. I'm sorry. All right. Um, so anyways, yeah, you'll find two nice scary seats sitting up in front of all the elders uh, there at the presbytery meeting. You'll be called up and you and your examiner will sit there right across from one another, right in front of the presbytery. The clerk will start the clock. And you will proceed to, I don't know, somewhere between 25 to 40 minutes. I think it may depend on the exam and the presbytery 
to being asked orally questions on the spot by the examiner. And then after that oral exam, it'll be opened up to questions, usually 10 minutes or so of questions from the other pastors and elders from the floor, and then usually followed by five minutes of comments from the floor. Yeah, and then there's a, a roll call vote. I, I found the, sure, yep. uh, the the 10 minutes of questions from the floor much more intimidating than the 20 minutes of questions from the examiner because you never know, <clears throat> you know what you're going to get. And oftentimes the questions from the floor – they're provoked by something you said, either you were unclear or you said something that, that was a little bit concerning. So um, those questions from the floor are actually really critical to kind of help iron out um, the answers and to make sure that, you know, we're not uh, answering heretically or um, sloppily. Yeah, I think that's the thing. I mean, because there you you don't know either what questions are coming right. from the floor exam. Like you said, I think the scary thing is, you know, when you see a guy walking up, <laughs> he probably said something wrong or he's wanting to probe deeper on something. And so, you know, you might have had this surface level answer memorized or something, but mm-hmm. somebody's about to probe a little bit. So, yeah, that I think you're right. That's what makes it intimidating is often they are based on things that were said. And I think you and I both found this to be true based on things that were said in the exam. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then the roll call votes also, it's just it's nauseating just sit there and just hear elders names yeah. listed off and then they sit sustain or not sustain. Oh, it's, it's the longest five minutes of your life. <laughs> so is, yeah, that's, that's the uh, oral exam. There are a couple written exams and that, that process looks a little bit different. So um, well, one of them is the English Bible exam and we'll get to that later. Uh, and I guess it really depends on the presbytery. So I'm actually going to, I'm going to keep uh, my comments aside for the English Bible exam, but um, we've got papers that we have to write. So, well, generally those will be papers that maybe we've used um, for seminary or uh, some other purpose, or we just write a brand new one. Um, then we write the paper, we send it to uh, the presbytery probably three or four weeks before the meeting of presbytery. The candidates and credentials committee will assign um, anywhere between two to four elders, I think, to examine that paper. So they'll read through it and they'll evaluate the, the content and the formatting and, and the um, punctuation and all that. Then they'll write a little report on, on your paper. Then they'll give that report to the presbytery and they will either recommend that the paper is sustained or not sustained. And then sometimes um, there's going to be opportunities for questions or uh, comments from the floor, and then it proceeds into a roll call vote. So very similar. It's just one is, is written ahead of time. And then the other is kind of just on the spot uh, where you have to just be ready. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so there are three tiers of exams. Um, what are those three tiers, Joey? Yeah, so the first one is eligibility to preach. And the second one is eligibility to receive a call. And then the fourth one, or third I'm one. sorry, the fourth one, the third one uh, um, the third level is your ordination exam. So you've received a call. And if, I mean, it doesn't matter if you're in the same presbytery or being brought into another one, there will be another slate of exams between your receiving and accepting the call and you're actually being formally ordained and installed. So those are the three levels, licensure to preach, eligibility to receive a call and ordination. Yeah. And before we get into the details of the, um, 
first tier of uh, licensure to preach. We we can some some sessions are very strict on this. Others are a little bit more lax. But the idea of being licensed to preach does not mean that you cannot preach until you go through all of these exams. Sometimes sessions will say that, and that's their prerogative. But um, generally, when you are um, a student and you're not licensed to preach yet, you can still be invited to preach. But generally, the session that you're under, whether you're interning with them or you're actually a member there, um, they're going to want to look at your sermon outline and maybe go through it before you actually preach it. Um, once you get licensed to preach, then the presbytery is basically saying, okay, we put our stamp of approval on this man. We don't need to oversee every jot and tittle of his manuscript or outline. Um, so he has more freedom to be able to write sermons and to preach sermons. So that's, that's the purpose of the uh, eligibility to preach. So um, sure. I, I, I kind of go back and forth. Are there five exams or six for the license I, to preach? I've, because uh, there are five exams in the GLG. I, I, I looked up my, my thing, you know, that Google doc that mm -hmm. they gave mm -hmm. us that we were to keep our exams up to date before this episode. And yeah, there are five exams for that level. Yeah, there's also so the reason I'm kind of vacillating back and forth is between because there's a evidence of progress sermon that students are required to give um, before they even start taking the exams. Um, so I don't know if that counts as part of the actual. Um, I think I don't I don't process. think so. I don't think so. I, I don't think so. I think that's the. I think there are only three sermons. I just think that's a horrible name. I think that's well, the issue. That's a horrible so name I was, for the first it, it sermon. Is, it is a horrible name. I was looking through the at least the GLG student handbook, and there's evidence of progress sermon, and then there's expository one sermon. So I don't know. Any, anyways, there's 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 a preaching exam, <laughs> and the uh, the preaching exam is is just that you'll find. If you're uh, taking this, uh, going through the exam process, you'll find that generally, unless you really, really mess up, um, elders are very gracious with you because it is the first sermon that you're preaching um, before them. Maybe even the first sermon that you've ever preached in your life. So you'll. No, you're right. Real quick. Oh, am I? I am I right? Say, say that again. I couldn't hear you again. Sorry. No, you right? are. Okay. Um, yeah, because I was just sitting here thinking that I preached four sermons. I preached on Deuteronomy 9 in Terre Haute, mm -hmm. Acts 12 in Kokomo, in the in the dungeon mm -hmm. there in the basement, that mm -hmm. as it became known by the students. Uh, and then I preached the Philippians sermon in Lafayette, and then I preached at for the ordination exams. Huh. Yeah. That's okay. Sorry. Um, no, thanks for interrupting me. I appreciate Continue it. Continue on. I don't even, dude, welcome. I don't even remember what I was saying. I have no idea. <laughs> Uh, what Sorry. I was saying. Okay. I just, it's just this, this episode is unraveling. Um, so when you, when you preach, you generally are given 20 minutes um, to preach. So you want to preach around 20 minutes. You don't want to go over that. Um, otherwise you start cutting into the agenda and then um, you will get feedback saying you need to be able to stick to a timeline. Um, then people will comment on um, what you did well, what you could work on. And then there's another roll call vote. So that that's the case for both the evidence of progress sermon and your first uh, expository sermon. So what exam do you want yeah. to do next? Unless you want to comment um, on those sermons. No, I think you're right. Yeah. I just totally, I mean, which makes the name of that, that sermon even more ridiculous evidence of progress. And it's your first sermon you've ever preached. Well, let's um, write a paper to send it and we'll, uh, we'll change it. I mean, we should just swap the first two. The first sermon should be called expository sermon one. 
and then an evidence of progress sermon, I, and then I don't, I don't disagree. I would, I would endorse sermon your too. paper. All right. I would sign it. Okay. <laughs> All right. So, so you, sorry, I was like lost trying. I know to you were totally zoned out. out there. Well, I was trying to recall because I mean, yeah. Anyways, so you, you, did you just go over evidence of progress and expository one sermons? Yeah, I mean they're basically the same, right? It's the I same mean, in process. a sense, yeah. I mean, sometimes, yeah, sometimes yeah. the. Uh, Candidates and Credentials Committee will assign you a passage. Not always, but uh, sure. Yeah. So the evidence of progress, you've got a lot of freedom to choose what you preach from, and then um, the expository sermon. They might say, "Give us a few passages, and we'll pick from one," or they'll just assign you one. That that would be really the only yep. difference. Yep. Yep. And so, and then I think the one a lot of guys hit next is the personal godliness exam. I think the reason guys hit that next is not that it's a less important exam or any sort of lesser exam in any way, shape or form. It's just one of those exams like you, you don't have to study for you. You don't prepare for in the same way that you do some of these theology and history and Bible exams. It's, it's not the kind of book study in a sense, the objective is be open and honest about who you are in the Lord at that point in time. Yeah. Well, and I think it's important to take that one um, early because if you go through, you know, the other exams and you do really well, and then you hit your personal godliness exam, it's like, Oh, this guy's actually a pagan. Well, you kind of wasted right. the whole court's time. So it's just, it's just kind of prudent to do that one first. So what, what is, sure. what does that exam consist of? Yeah. I mean, just basic, it's just basic godliness questions you know they could be built around questions uh, from godliness in terms of the beatitudes the fruit of the spirit the character qualifications from first timothy 3 and titus 1 you often asked about your personal devotional life with the lord things like uh, marriage questions how does your wife feel about this whole process family worship, uh, how you're leading your wife, children, uh, Sabbath observance. Those, those were the main things I remember. You may get asked about influences. You know, what, what are the things you typically read or listen to or watch? You know, they're just wanting to find out who are the influencers, if you will, in your life. Um, is there anything else you remember? Yeah, well, the, the personal godliness exam is a bit distinct from the others because there's both the public and the private portion of the exam. Sure, yeah, so yeah. Your, your examiner, whoever it is, uh, will contact you and set up a phone call or a Zoom meeting or whatever between you and your pastor. And during that portion of the exam, you'll get asked more um, personal questions, um, questions regarding to really personal sins. Um, and personal struggles and victory and um, th those kinds of things. There'll be questions like uh, there'll actually be some financial questions as well to see if you've uh, been bankrupt or ever you know started a business that failed that kind of thing. So the reason for that is they just want to be able to ask questions that uh, you'll be able to answer open and honestly while maintaining and protecting your reputation um, should there uh, come out that there's still unrepentant sin uh, in your life or uh, gross immorality that's taking place or even recently took place. So that's, that's kind of to protect uh, the man um, and his reputation and his character. And then if he doesn't 
um, past that portion. If the examiner doesn't recommend that he go on to the second portion, um, then it's just, you know, the Lord refining you and continuing to bring about the sanctification in your life. So that's really the the big difference between personal godliness exams and all the other exams is it's really a two-tiered exam of personal or a uh, private and a public portion. Yes, sir. And then uh, the next one. Yeah. So I think, I think we did probably our systematic one and church history paper. Did both of us do Bible exam last in that first tier? I certainly did. Yeah, I think so. That's perhaps that's just for, for whatever reason, the most intimidating exam. But anyways, I guess after that was for us, it was the church history paper. And that was in the GLG. I would say everywhere, obviously. Um, that's that's a written exam. You're going to take a paper. Uh, doesn't have to be, but generally speaking, it's going to be a paper you wrote for one of your church history courses. And what makes that nice is if you got a decent grade on it, got feedback from it, from your professor, generally speaking, you should do well enough on it may not always be the case. There could be all sorts of questions, whatever, but generally speaking, that's what makes it nice about turning in a paper that you've already turned in in seminary and had a professor go over it. But yeah, you'll turn in that history paper, like Aaron already said, anywhere from two, three, four guys will be tasked with combing through that paper. They'll come up, they'll, they'll write generally a before the meeting they'll write an endorsement or not of the paper and then basically the kind of head of that review committee will give up he may just read what he wrote out to everybody and at that point again you'll it'll be opened up to questions comments from other guys who have read it what they've got and then after that I don't think I ever interacted on a written paper. You, I was brought up front for the exegesis paper, but there's no interaction. So you may get brought up front for a while and be asked to be ready to answer any questions about your paper. And then if there are none, it would go to the roll call vote. Yeah. yeah. So it's probably good that you uh, read your paper right before the exam, just in case. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, yes. And th- so the, the length of the, the paper is also going to be dependent upon which presbytery you're in. So for your seminary classes, there's like, I think anywhere between 10 to 15 pages is the requirement to pass the seminary class. But in whichever presbytery you're in, it may be 10 to 15 or maybe 25 to 30. Um, so you might have to beef up your paper a little bit. Um, I, what was your paper on? I don't remember your church history paper. It was... Pedo communion in the first three centuries. Oh, right. Where you were arguing that babies should take communion. Don't say that. (laughs) (laughs) No, not at all. For one, it was a historical paper. Uh, So it wasn't arguing any doctrinal positions, though I put numerous footnotes in my one that went to presbytery to make clear. I do not believe you didn't put numerous communion. footnotes. You put one at the very there were two. end. There were two. Oh, two. Okay. But there was another I guess one. that counts as numerous. I don't think of two as numerous. I think like when you were there, use the word numerous, I'm thinking like 10. Okay, fine. Two. Okay. All right. A couple. That's all. There, there you go. Okay. Big, bold, big, bold print. <laughs> all right. Very good. Um, all right. So I think all that's left. No, we got two more. Um, so what are the yeah. last two? Take it however you want. 
systematic one was the next one we took glg and i don't i don't know if we have any presbyteries where systematics are written or not but systematic one exam and that for the most part is going to consist of basic westminster shorter catechetical theology uh, questions rooted around basic theology they're you know it's 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 generally speaking not a tough exam uh, especially if you're someone who likes systematic theology uh, I mean I could say more on it but I was going to save those for the tips but I mean that's an oral exam you'll be brought up there again I think it was at 25 minutes 30 minutes or something like that and basically, you're just asked theological questions and giving your answers for 30 minutes and 10 minutes from the floor, five minutes, comments and questions, and then a roll call vote. Yeah. Um, so then the the last exam before your license to preach is uh, your Bible exam. Now, I was under the impression that it was written. It was a written exam for all presbyteries. But I just learned this week, actually, that uh, the St. Lawrence Presbytery, you have to take it um, orally. Um, so it's going to depend on uh, whichever presbytery you're in, but th- this exam just consists of biblical knowledge. Um, so I, I'm a f- I can't talk about it too much. We're actually instructed as students if we've taken it not to talk about it too much, but it's basically just like facts about the scripture, uh, different verses that maybe would be relevant to particular things. Um, so it's it's broken up into different um, types of questions in regards to the different uh, genres of scripture. And that's really all that I think I'm going to say, because I don't want somebody to listen to this and be like, Oh, you just gave all the students things that they need to learn. (laughs) Yeah. Well, Um, I mean, you said less than the GLG student handbook said, so you're safe on that. I mean, the student handbook, at least in GLG essentially lays out everything you just said in, 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 in even more detail. It's not, it is not a doctrinal exam or it is not a biblical theology exam. It, in a lot of ways, is a Bible trivia exam. And GLG Handbook makes that clear. Yeah. A different genre. I mean, if you can get your hands on the GLG Handbook or just ask ask your candidates and credentials committee what it consists of, that's basically what it's going to be. Yeah. So let's let's do this because we're, we're uh, taking up a lot of time here. Let's just quickly go through the uh, rest of the exams here um, before we get into maybe advice and some other um, questions about our own experience taking these exams. So once you are uh, licensed to preach, then you enter the second um, tier of exams, which is to be licensed to receive a call so that when a call does come your way from a congregation, you're able to uh, actually accept it or not. Um, so again, this consists of five exams. So you've got another preaching exam. This is kind of what we call a topogetical <laughs> type of a sermon because, uh, they want it to be expository, but they'll give you like a particular topic, um, that you need to be discussing from a particular passage. Then you've got a, a second systematics exam, and this is going to be much more intense than your first systematics exam. Um, they'll be asking you to interact with different, uh, heresies and maybe, uh, ways to, uh, combat that or different questions that you might get from um, members of congregations. You've got an oral church history exam. Um, so it's uh, basically covers 2000 years of church history. So it's a very challenging exam to study for. Uh, you've got a 
pastoral and evangelistic gifts uh, exam. And this asks questions like, it, it's really trying to get at, do you have a shepherd's heart? Um, how do you counsel people? Um, how do you handle certain scenarios, situations? Um, what kind of scripture would you give to this uh, particular person who faces I don't know, depression or something like that? And then you've got another written exam, your exegesis paper. Um, so this will be Old Testament, New Testament exegesis. And uh, it's, it's a pretty involved paper. Um, it caused me a lot of sweat and grief. Uh, just writing it, but by God's grace, uh, was able to pass it on the first try. So that's uh, that's the license to receive a call. Once you pass those exams, Lord willing, once you pass those exams and uh, a call is extended to you, you accept that call, um, you'll have your ordination exams from whatever presbytery that congregation is in. And so those exams, there's just three of them this time. You have a second personal godliness exam and the process is exactly the same. There's a a private and a public portion. Then you have another uh, preaching exam and then a third systematic theology exam. And this one uh, focuses a lot on our own denominational distinctives and uh, Westminsterian doctrine. Um, so those are the exams. Anything you'd like to add, Mr. Smith? Nope. Nope. Very good. So uh, before we get into kind of uh, your advice for students, why such an intense process? What's the, the purpose of these exams? Uh, yeah, I mean, the scriptures in 1 Timothy 3, um, it said speaking directly of deacons, but it applies, it's used as a proof text in the larger catechism for who should be able to preach and that process and why, why only called ministers should be doing such calls for the officers of the church to be tested. And in 1 Timothy 5, we have the call not to lay hands on anyone hastily, not to ordain and install any man hastily. And so both of those being the case, since it's the elders who install and they're not to be doing so hastily, they're the ones that are examining. And so uh, that's kind of simple basis for why we have this process of these exams, but also, uh, we don't want to be sending, at least in good conscience, obviously, synods, councils, sessions, presbyteries err in this. We're not infallible, but God has ordained means. And generally speaking, uh, we can trust that when we follow those means, if a man has made it through these processes, he's been vetted as to his theological knowledge, we can be confident, at least as far as fallible men can be, fallible fallen men can be, that he's not going to be preaching false doctrine and teaching false doctrine. We can be confident that he can preach the word, uh, that he is a, a godly man, at least in an, an exemplary sense, not a perfect man, but an exemplary man. Uh, we can be confident that he knows church history, that he has some academic ability to engage at an academic level through his papers. And, and so it's it's really out of care and concern, first and foremost, to honor our Lord and Savior, and then to care for, it is a shepherding ministry in a way too, towards the flock, that we're not sending you a man. The presbytery is not going to send you a man, even if you've called this man, <laughs> if he is not a capable man. 
And so it's out of love for congregations as well. Yeah. To sum it up, it's to evaluate the character, calling, gifts, knowledge, and skill of, of the individual. Sure. And uh, this is why your sermons are an hour and mine are only half an hour. <laughs> oh, geez. All right. Uh, so you said you had uh, just a list of things, uh, advice that that you would give guys who are entering this process or maybe even in the midst of it. So I'll just hand it over to you. And um, what are what are some things that you would say to someone who was in that process? I mean, some of mine were just it kind of, for one, like the big thing for me and I think for you as well was study 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 like take it seriously don't don't just think that you're going to walk in there and just because you've read a crossway paperback on theology and listened to a couple podcasts that that it's going to be all good and dandy when you're being set in front of a presbytery full of men who have been shepherding the Lord's church and studying doctrine for years unto decades and that you're put in the hot seat and that everything's going to be all good again. Like it was preparing for an exam and watching an exam that made me realize, even if I know something, I don't know it how I need to know it. Mm -hmm. I can tell you what justification is. I can do it now very quickly, but I'm just saying beforehand, I could have told you what justification was if you gave me five minutes, but when you give me five seconds and then it's on to the next question. Uh, so you need to study and study specifically to draw your knowledge down into the most concise format that you can present it. So studying is the basis of everything you have to study or you're going to get up there and you're going to make a fool out of yourself uh, in front of these guys. And it's, it's not going to be good for you. It's not going to be good for you. Um, yeah, let, me, some let, of me the just, let me just add to that real sure. quick as you're going on. Cause that was certainly my experience, uh, particularly with my first systematics exam. So I don't, I don't mind saying this on the podcast, but I passed my systematics, my first systematics exam by one vote by one. So literally by the skin of my teeth and it was because it was like, yeah, of course, I know all this stuff. Like, I, I don't need to study. Um, so there was uh, a level of hubris that just got beaten out of me <laughs> uh, from that exam. And so, like, you used the the term justification. And I, honestly, that was the the big one is I got asked, you know, what is justification? And I I gave a correct answer, but a uh, it wasn't a robust answer. So it only contained a small element of justification. And, um, you know, the comments from the floor were really humbling. Um, so after I, uh, you know, stopped crying, <laughs> not quite, um, I went and I really studied justification and it was very helpful. So yes, study, study, study. You think you know it, you don't. And uh, even if you do know it, articulating it is very different, particularly when yeah, you have the pressure yeah. of the elders in front of you. Yeah, yeah, 100%. And so when it, when it comes to theology, what you need to immerse yourself in is the Westminster Confession of Faith, larger catechism, shorter catechism, and the RP testimony. And specifically, I mean, you can almost step those up. Um, you should be reading it all along, becoming, I mean, that should be the RP, if you're coming into the RP church, other than the Bible, the document you should be most familiar with or the documents are are those ones i just named and then obviously also the 
directory of public worship and church government and book of discipline. But for the theology exams, like for the first theology exam, just pour over every single day, make you a routine, 10 questions a day, whatever it is, whatever you're doing, pour over the shorter catechism. And I'd, I never found it helpful to memorize. I found it more helpful to get the essence of it in my head, to pour over it so much that by osmosis, the gist of it got into my head. And ask yourself a question, close your eyes, give a response, see how close you were and bring yourself into substantial conformity to the shorter catechism. And then for the two and the three exams, become super familiar with the larger catechism, especially those questions that the shorter catechism, shorter catechism doesn't address. And then also the Westminster Confession of Faith and the RP testimony. You just need to be reading those. And then in addition to that, something that Aaron and I were both blessed by and found super helpful was just on the side through seminary. So helpful to read through uh, Louis Burkhoff's systematic theology. Uh, do that on the side. Make yourself your own time for it. Set aside an hour or two a week. Um, and even if you don't think you have time, you'll thank yourself for it because seminary is just preparing you to pass these exams. It's all about passing these exams. And so, so know your confession, catechisms, RP testimony, and read through Louis Burkhoff. Uh, then when it came to the Bible exams, something that is just super helpful in addition to just reading your Bible every single day, uh, prayerfully studying it, was just taking as many practice exams as possible. Uh, you can find these practice exams online. Like I said, I think some of the ones that I was using and recommended guys, I think it was the PCUSA. But the thing is, like I said, these are the Bible exam is not a doctrinal exam. It's a trivia exam. And that's what these PCUSA practice exams were. Nothing about their erroneous liberal theology nowadays, just pure Bible facts. So just boom, just take as many of those as you can. And then a couple more after you can't do any more. Uh, RTS, I think, has some stuff. Westminster Seminary has some. Take as many. Bible knowledge practice exams as you possibly can. Another thing you and I found helpful was making study guides. Uh, did that for every exam. Do that for the theology exams. Like literally, even if you're studying the catechism, get out a pen and paper, write out what is justification, and then write out your answer. There's just something to of writing that out mm -hmm. by hand. That over helps get and it in over the and over again. Yeah, and it, just get yourself, make yourself some carpal a, tunnel. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, no, no doubt. Do it till your hand hurts. Um, I th I found it super helpful to do this for the church history oral exam. Uh, we made study guides for that. Make you a study guide, list all the heresies, and give yourself short, concise answers as short and concise as you can give them uh, to where they're correct. Heresies, big dates, big events big names and then have you a separate section for all of that stuff within RP history as well. But make yourself a study guide for that. I was um, just, uh, I was just looking at my study guide for uh, my church history exam earlier this week. Cause a student is taking uh, his church history exam, a uh, friend of ours here soon. Um, so he was just asking for resources. So I gave him mine. I was looking through it and I was like, man, I forgot so much. I need to go back and, oh, yeah. and look at this. Yeah. Anyways, go on. Yeah. 
Yeah. Um, and then one thing you and I would do with our own study guides, and this is a thing that has a two tier thing, but test, test yourself and test each other. You and I would every single week leading up to exams, test each other on systematic theology, test each other on church history. And then when we were in seminary, we would have presbytery exam practice where uh, multiple of us would get together and we would do mock exams. Mock and then we would get mocked for our answers. Especially when you have a man like Josh Smith as your, as your examiner. He loved uh, mocking as he was examining in love, of course. Oh, of course. Of course. <laughs> of course. <laughs> so, uh, Stephen Mulder was much more gracious than Josh as an examiner, but it you know, prepared us. It, it did. It, it, it was helpful. Nobody could be any more unkind than Josh Smith. Ooh, I wasn't going to go there. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> so, yeah, test each other. Te- find you uh, one person to test each other a lot. And then if, if you're in seminary, go out of your way to make these exams. I think just the, the one other thing I had, um, this is more back with the systematic theology exams, in your study guide, if you don't already have a good grasp of the scriptures and the proof texts for certain doctrines, you need to go out of your way to be able to give a proof text, a reference for the vast majority of doctrinal questions that you can be asked so you should well, think, be able yeah, to give, even in your in your study guide when you're coming up with like you're writing out these questions and answers you need to be having your scripture proofs there and if you don't memorize the the scripture verbatim you need to be able to at least paraphrase it and no chapter and verse because a lot of guys will get dinged for giving correct theological answers but without the backbone of scripture it doesn't really do anything so we need to know why we are, why we hold to these theological truths. These are not things that we're just pulling out of our hat. These are things that are grounded in scripture. Um, so having the scripture memorized is of utmost importance. Yeah. Or, or even you'll have a guy ask you what's justification or whatever, and you give the right answer. And then he tells you to prove it from scripture or tell me from scripture, why you believe that. And then guys get made look like fools. Cause now, you know, certainly, it is not above a man to just know these things and lock up because of the pressure of the exam and presbyters understand that. But nevertheless, uh, if you've done your prep work, you should be able to, you should be able to give a proof text for Mm -hmm. justification. And even if it's not a particular verse, I mean, dang, at least memorize a chapter, right? Like you should at least be able to say, Romans four. If somebody's talking about justification, like I don't know, I just don't think it's that hard, really. But yeah, you have any other advice? No, that that, those were the main those were the main things that I thought of that just came to mind that I remember finding super helpful. Just taking it serious and just study, study, study until you can't take it anymore. But you'll be happy you did. Yep. Don't eat before you take the exams, too. That's uh. That's just a little practical oh, yeah. advice I'll give. You'll throw up. All right. So as you were going through the exam process, Mr. Smith, what did you find to be the hardest exam? And then what did you find to be the hardest question? And why was it one of the fruits of the spirit? <laughs> um, 
So you asked me hardest exam and then hardest question. Yeah. Uh -huh, uh -huh. Not necessarily in that exam, but just period throughout the whole experience. I would say probably either Sean Anderson's systematic two or Kyle Borg's systematic three exam. I think Kyle Borg had more time. So he was able to peg me with more questions, uh, but they were both really good. Um, I thought both men did an excellent job. I don't think they asked me anything I shouldn't shouldn't have known. And so they were hard exams, but in the, uh, they were good exams. They weren't too hard of exams. Um, they were stretching, though. So I think those two exams, I'd have to go back and look at the questions uh, to see which one I thought was more difficult. The hardest question, I know it's funny, you mentioned the, the fruit of the spirit thing. And yeah, that was like, way past my bedtime and i think i got eight of the nine and not in order at all well something so, something is how you answered it yeah Love, joy, that peace, was the patience, last something something <laughs> i think i think i gave seven or eight and then ended with a something something because i knew i was i knew i was slacking um but yeah the good thing is those exams will humble you and you'll never forget the fruit of the spirit again or justification again or or anything you perhaps may botch in an exam. <laughs> you won't forget it again. And so that's why it's good for you. Um, I, I mean, I, I, Kyle asked me a question and I wish I could remember what it was. I think it was the only question in that exam where I said I didn't know. And I wish I could remember what it was. So that that was a tough one. I feel like I was vaguely in line with what vaguely familiar with maybe what he was getting at, but the terminology he used was, was beyond me at that point. And so uh, that was a good humbling question, but that was one. Yeah. I just, I just didn't know uh, Sean Anderson's question on is, is, is Christ the mediatorial priest of China? That one threw me for a good loop-de-loo. Mm -hmm. And then <laughs> In my church history exam, I was asked a slew of questions at the end about, Got about that. tell me, tell me some significant church event or theologian from every continent or something like that. Yeah, every continent. And the man went through each continent and I knew none of them. So it was well, and it wasn't even what, just that. I think it was in like within the last 20 years. Yeah. Oh, yeah, like yeah, yeah. It was very, very specific. Modern global church history big events not even modern like current, like current church history sure yeah. yeah and so it was like essentially probably five minutes it seemed like an eternity of me saying i don't know i don't know i don't know to the point where i was convinced i had failed the exam uh, because of how many times just by mere pure quantity i said i don't know yeah, it was it was only about 30 seconds. And I think the the examiner's <laughs> point was, you know, we know we know a lot of church history, but we're not really current on things that have happened relatively recently. So it's a fair point. I mean, generally, when we take these church history exams, we're studying for very specific periods. So I think we were kind of taken off guard by that. Hey, what about you, Mr. Murray? Dude, you were way more confident during the exam process than I was, or maybe you just hid your fear and trembling better. <laughs> I, I thought the hardest exam I took was the next one I was taking. Mm. So every single exam I found incredibly, incredibly challenging. Like God's grace got through it. But I think the, um, 
I think the systematics exams were probably the most intimidating out of all of them. And then the uh, exegesis paper was also really intimidating because I'm just not a good writer and I'm not, I'm not as sharp systematically as you are. Um, so the hardest question I got, it's not, it, it, you know, as I've thought about it now, I'm like, okay, it's not really a hard question, but it was during my first systematics exam. And this was a question from the floor. And I think it was from Adam Keener, uh, our clerk. And he asked, did God die on the cross? And I, I, I just locked up. I was like, uh, and I wasn't sure what to say. So I said, well, I think you know, Jesus died on the cross and that set off alarm bells for other, all types of like, <laughs> concerning uh, heresies throughout church history. So I, I just crumbled and it literally is by God's grace that I passed that exam. Um, so that was, that was the hardest one just cause I wasn't expecting it. I hadn't really thought about it. Um, and then sometimes questions can be hard when they use language from the catechism or from the confession, which is why it's really important to read it. So when people ask, like, what is the instrument of salvation or instrument of justification? Um, you ought to know what the language is and, and what the answer is. And it's it's faith, by the way. I just gave you that answer. So, yeah, I found I found the exam process to be stressful, intimidating, scary. And I'm so thankful that by God's grace, I uh, I got through it. Um, what did you find to be some of the most helpful feedback that you got? So there, you know, during the exams, there's, you know, comments from the floor. And so they'll, um, give you feedback on what you did well, or maybe what you need to sharpen up on. And then sometimes, um, often they'll come up and talk to you personally after your exams. So what, what did you find just some helpful feedback after your exams? Yeah, I think I mentioned on the episode with Sean Anderson, his just, his feedback and willingness to sit down with me after that systematic two exam and the feedback I got from him was super helpful. I usually found the preaching feedback, even if I didn't agree with all of it, uh, still that criticism is good for us. Um, there was feedback Craig Scott gave me on my X 12 sermon uh, that was really good. I think, I think it was most of, most of that. I think, I mean, I think Craig's feedback, you know, something like you need to not only tell them, tell them what and tell them why, but, but also need to tell them how uh, they need to be doing something. Um, the, Adam Keener usually gave really good preaching feedback and then, and then a lot of it was maybe stuff guys wouldn't say stuff from the floor, but would mm -hmm. maybe come say something to you afterwards, just like little things. Like I think I said one time in uh, in one of the exams that that I looked forward to, you know, being being one of the guys who would like say, for instance, uh, give rides to some of our elderly members who need rides to church and. I was just kind of gently corrected on that, that like, yeah, it's nice that your heart is in that, but your main duties on the Lord's day are to be preparing to preach to that person mm -hmm. when they get to church. And so it's just, it wasn't a critique of the heart behind it. It was a reminder of what your priorities are right. and to make sure that you're as prepared as you can be for, for that thing. So there was much other good feedback as well that I can like, picture it somewhat in my mind like adam keener said another something to me one time on something and i remember thinking it was helpful but i can't remember exactly now what it was uh-huh uh -huh. yeah i uh 
taking the exams and you get comments from the floor. Like there were, there were times where I just got kind of eviscerated <laughs> by some of the elders. Um, and then they'd come up to you afterwards and they'd just be so encouraging. So like, you know, I got, I got, uh, I got some pretty humbling feedback from an, a particular elder during one of my exams and then afterwards, we just sat down and, and we talked and he just gave me a lot of good resources to to look into and kind of spurred me on to continue to study. Um, so just going through that and, and all, all the feedback I found helpful. And it, it was just a good reminder that, you know, we're tough on students because we want students to succeed and and we love them. So is it is it a tough love? Yes, but it's a very tender, compassionate you know, we're for you. We're kind of a love. So the feedback's always really, really helpful. All right. I have one more question for you. And this is actually a preaching question because it's the blue banter and we have to talk about preaching. All right. Another silly one. All right. Do you listen to music when you prepare your sermons? And if so, what do you listen to? Absolutely not. <laughs> Never. Ever. Ever. I take it you do. Well, so yes and no. When I'm doing the study <laughs> for the sermon, I will not listen to music. Like when I when I'm outlining, when I'm working with the Greek or Hebrew, um, which I do a little bit. Um, when you know I'm reading commentaries and that kind of thing, no music, none whatsoever. But when I'm writing the sermon, I like to have some type of instrumental music. So whether that's instrumental um, metal, which I do listen to, there's some pretty good playlists on YouTube that have no vocals. So it doesn't distract you or like um, soundtrack type music, like audio machine. Um, they've got some really good intense music or maybe some EDM. I like that. It kind of helps me. Um, and I kind of like hit the keys to the beat of whatever I'm listening to. So that's kind of helpful. I was just, I was just curious if you, uh, if you did that or not. What kind of music? I have no idea what you just said. Listening to. You're cutting in and out real bad. Can you hear me now? I, I can hear you now. So go ahead and go ahead and say what you were saying. Uh, I was just saying, <laughs> I just imagine like being able to tell in your sermons and your <laughs> preaching what kind of music you were listening to when you're super aggressive. It was probably because you were jacked up on metal music uh-huh. Uh-huh. Uh, during the time. Maybe, maybe that would be, uh, That'd be interesting. I might actually have to do that now. So I'll keep track of what I'm listening to. And then I'll ask my wife, you know, how was my demeanor? How was that? my intensity? Yeah. You know, and if I was like really just relaxed, maybe I was just listening to Beethoven or something like that. Fair enough. Fair enough. All right. Well, you got anything else you'd like to say as we wrap up this episode? I don't think so. All right. Well, this has been another episode of the Blue Banter podcast. If you would like or rate and review us on iTunes or whatever podcast catcher you use, that would be very helpful to us. If you uh, have a question that you'd like us to ask a pastor or maybe recommend that we interview your pastor, you can email us at bluebanterpodcast at gmail.com. If you wouldn't mind sharing this uh, episode and any other episodes you listen to on social media, again, that would be really appreciated and help spread. Uh, the podcast because it's all kind of word of mouth type of thing we do pretty much no marketing uh, for ourselves and until next time whether you eat drink or banter do all to the glory of god